This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And I always say this, we've got a special guest, but uh, my kids love reading, love books, love being read to. And their favorite book is Wonky Donkey. Yeah. And we're we're very um privileged to be joined by the author, uh Craig Smith, who's got another book out. Good morning, Craig. Good morning, Rodney. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm fascinated by uh authors. Yes. And because I can't imagine I actually are lucky enough I've written a couple of books, but they're about things that I sort of knew about. And but I can't imagine writing non-fiction. And I absolutely can't imagine writing a children's book. Um, and you've done it, and not only have you done it, and I just want to tell listeners this. Craig's book, he as an author, he is the number one children's book author by sales every year for just on 15 years in New Zealand. So he's the number one author for children's books. But get this, across all books, he's number two in New Zealand over that time behind Annabelle Langbein, who's does the cooking books, right? So cooking books and children's books are big sellers, but there's a lot of cooking books, a lot of children's books, and they don't necessarily sell, but yours do. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's. I mean, I've I've written plenty of of stories that, when I take on the road, I, I have a huge advantage. Um, over a lot of other authors in the way that I write mine in song. And then I actually perform the songs in front of children all the time. And so I get to see what works and what doesn't work. And so I, I sort of uh, market, test my stories before they actually become uh, books on the shelf. And so if I've written a line that I think is funny and no one's laughing, I know to go back and rewrite it. Or I know to discard it altogether. Or sometimes I've written something that's just sort of a little bit of a throwaway line. And everyone cracks up. And so I go, oh, hang on a second. That's actually bitten a bit more than I thought it would. And so I know to go a little bit more in that direction or, or the other. So I have a huge advantage. So that's why when the books finally get to the store, I kind of know that they're going to do pretty well. And so your books as written are actually songs that you perform. Correct. Yeah. So I write all my stories in songs. And so you're traveling around. We'll get to that because you're an amazing author um, and you've touched a lot of lives. You've touched a lot of kids' lives, um, which must be amazing as you travel around. But I'd like to find out a little bit about you and then onto the books and onto the new book. But you were, you're a musician. Yeah. So I picked up the guitar when I was 12. A guy called Gary Kernahan at Queenstown or I should say Wakatip, who um, high school taught me how to play guitar. And, um, yeah, I hadn't really thought about becoming a professional musician until in my mid-30s where I just went, you know what, just follow your heart a bit more and, and 
do more music. And so uh, I was playing in bars and pubs and beer gardens and things like that. Um, Just back up the truck. Yep. When you picked up the guitar at 12. Yes. Did you love it? Yeah. I already already knew I wanted to play it. So had you done music previously to that? No, but oh look, I was a huge fan of the day, the the, the stinger songwriters of the day, you know, Neil Young comes springs to mind, yes. um, Cat Stevens, James Taylor, Bob Dylan, all these amazing so um Harry Chapin, you know, all these amazing singer songwriters and they all play guitar. And uh, you know, when you're twelve, you've got these <laughs> images of playing guitar and being famous and you know so i, I yeah I, I, and and i had a voice i knew i had a voice because i was i could sing along i could sing along to those um, artists you know and you go off to wakatipu high school mm-hmm. and like you could elect to do music yes so you did it in class time like it wasn't extra tuition or it was just class no, time actually the, the class time was was the, the only classes that they had at Wapitip High School at the time was, was sort of semi-classical, and yes. that wasn't me. So I didn't do it in class. Uh, the the caretaker, uh, Gary Kernahan, taught me. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so he taught me sometimes at lunchtimes, just, you know, and he, he was back in the 80s, he'd have a cigarette and bring his guitar in, and I'd sit by the tractor sheds and we'd have a bit of a jam. That happened a few times, but... Then what he said is, look, Craig, I need a babysitter from time to time, and would you, would you babysit for us, uh, for me, and my wife, and Donovan, this child, and um, and I'll teach you how to play guitar. I I couldn't afford a guitar at that time, so Gary had one in his house, and so I'd go there and he'd show me certain chord changes and, and write th- certain chords down, and then he'd go out for two or three hours with his wife, and I'd sit there and play guitar. And did it come easily to you? Um, what I found in my life, it's my superpower, but it's also my <clears throat> my undoing in many things, is my focus. Once I've, once I've decided I'm going to do something, I, I tend to throw a lot of effort into it and, and a, lot, a lot of times at the detriment to other things. Yeah. But when you're 12 and learning guitar, it doesn't matter. So I just threw, I just played and played and played. Played until my fingers beat, literally. No. And did you learn to read music? No. No. And to this day you can't read music? Still can't read music to this day. Isn't it funny? Because I don't is it like a lot of pop stars and great musicians couldn't read music, right? Yeah, I guess it's the same sort of thing. They just they just have a passion for it and they pick it up and play it. But you know, there's a lot of people who did uh, know how to read music as well. But um uh, there's a lot of people who, who didn't. Yeah, and I just, uh, I just play from the heart and play from the ear. Yeah, and when you play, did you sing? Yes. Yep. So and you... initially, just initially at the end of my bed, so not in front of people. Yeah. <laughs> but then you know, when I was eighteen, nineteen, you know, oh, there might be the odd party or two, and I'd, I'd play. Uh, what I what I learned early is if you play something like "Knocking on Heaven's Door," which which everybody knows. Uh, and the chorus, knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. You know, you can, the whole party will join you on that. Yes. And so you're not alone. You're not just by yourself singing. 
you're just part of the crowd, even though you've initiated it and you're singing it, everyone else joins in. And so it's way more comfortable. So that's that's the that was one of the tips that I learned early was if if you're gonna play at a party, play something that everybody knows and then it's not so daunting because everyone starts singing with you. When I sing knock knock knocking on heaven's door <laughs> in my head it yeah. sounds beautiful. Right. <laughs> But I'm but, the only person who hears it that way. Yeah, but the thing is, is if you've got twenty other people singing with you and they all sound good, you 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 that's yeah. what I'm my point. Yeah. And um and I mean Bob Dylan had a funny voice, really, or has a funny voice, yeah. right? But it was so evocative because it was it was um the the voice chimed with the music and the lyrics. It was haunting. Yeah, and I think also because he was an everyday man, like his yes. voice was an everyday. Yes. Obviously, his music writing and his lyric writing weren't, but his voice was was very everyday. Yes. And um, and I think that was part of the appeal. Yes. Um, what do you think of Richmond, north of Richmond? Oh, I love it. I love I'm it. I'm just going to check because gonna... his voice and his music are a perfect match for who he is, right? It's so, well, yeah. they use the word authentic. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's a bit like your books. It just took off from nowhere, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I toured, I, I played music for a good, um, I started playing music probably 2000 and like full-time music, um, <clears throat> probably about 2004. 2006 that's when I did it as a job full time and um, and the book didn't come out until 2009 um, so I I didn't actually um, you know like, like I had I had actually quite a few years of groundwork down yes so it wasn't and, and, and part of that was singing two kids as well I started to do a lot of kids stuff and um, yeah so it was it was pretty good that I had that advantage again. What did you do if it's not rude? Oh, by the way, I don't know how to word this, Craig, but I imagine playing a guitar and being able to sing and sing Knocking on Heaven's Door, it'd be pretty cool when you're 16, 17, 18, 19, and I'm thinking particularly with girls. Yeah, well, that was a big a big draw card. Huge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because for a, even if, it, if it's only like often, I'd be at a party and the guitar would be passed around, and um, yeah, you, you were centre of attention for three or four yeah. minutes while you're singing a song. So, or if you're doing several songs, so that's always a bonus. Uh, we had at school a guy who no one noticed, and one night at school we had a. A, a, a dance which I never danced and I really hated it. it was like my idea of a nightmare funny enough dance a dance <laughs> but this young boy came out and no one had noticed him and he sat at the piano and he played and sang Nights in White Satin oh yeah and he had the most tremendous voice and like the whole 
school stopped. Yeah, and attitudes changed. Attitudes changed. Like he yeah, was sure. the coolest kid, because mm. um, he could play the piano and he could sing "Nights in White Satin." And man, that was something. And that was you. I don't. I want to. I don't want to pry too deeply. But what did you no, do before you became a full time musician? Um, so I did. I mean, if you, I started when my first. Uh, I mean, I started doing things like kitchen handing. I'm, I live in Queenstown, grew up in Queenstown, and there's lots of jobs for me to carry bags up to rooms, kitchen hand, waiter, all that sort of stuff. Um, I worked at a Mexican restaurant for a while. <laughs> I worked at a fruit and vegetable wholesale market, delivering vegetables around Queenstown, uh, Arrowtown, and stuff like that. Um, but um, but then I went up to Auckland and I got a job in door to door sales, and mm. I did that for quite some time, and quite successfully. And I went to Australia and opened up some businesses over there, and then I even went to Vietnam, and so I was importing products from China with a Canadian partner of mine. And we were training and, and developing um, sales teams in Vietnam, and I did that for six years. Wow. Yeah. So you had, a, funnily enough, a good background in sort of dealing with people Yep. and um, working out how to market. And then what prompted you, because it must have been quite scary, although it's not like, I'm guessing, I'm not trying to be rude, I love it because I've never had a career, but you weren't a person that was like, climbing a corporate ladder or working in a law office or being a doctor, you were sort of trying different things. Yeah. And then you say, okay, I'm going to commit. I'm going to be a full-time musician. What prompted that? Well, that's a good story. Um, I was already on the way to changing my career. Like I was in the sales and marketing sort of side of things. And then I left Vietnam, came back to New Zealand, and I was working with IHC, Bernardo's, things like that. Um, and we were doing, you know, you'd go door to door and we were selling uh, people to sign up to mm -hmm. IHC and things like that. And then I got to a point where I went, you know, I need to be doing something different. And and then I got a call from my friend, Chris Danport, who has a boat. And he was sailing from Opua to Tonga. And he rang me and out of almost out of jest, he just said, you know, oh, do you wanna do you wanna come with me? I need a I need a crew. And I went, Yeah, yeah, I do. So three weeks later I was in Opua and up near Russell there, and we jumped on the um on the boat and sailed to Tonga. Halfway across we got into a hurricane. <laughs> and then uh, By the way, had you sailed before? No, oh I sailed but never open ocean. So you knew how to sail, but like this is another level, very, right? Very briefly, yeah. But Chris was a Chris was Chris was a good sailor. Okay. So, so um, I was learning as I was going. Yeah. And um, and so then we got halfway across. We got into a hurricane. Uh, in that hurricane, eight boats were either sunk or abandoned, and three people lost their lives. And our boat, for a split second, ended up upside down. Cheapest. And then it roll, did a big roll thing. And while we were upside down, there was a split second where I, I thought, oh, I wish I'd done more music because I thought this, that we're gone here. There so was, are you in a cabin and the boat's in the upside down in the water? What's that? You're in a cabin. Yep. And the boat's upside down. Yep. 
and you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. In, in a hurricane. <laughs> That's like... So if you want to wake up cool, that, that was it. And your only thought was, I wish I'd done more music. There was a couple of other thoughts, which I won't get into, but yeah. um, but one of the main thoughts was, I wish I'd done more music. And the boat righted itself. The boat righted itself. We obviously continued on and managed to uh, navigate our way through to Tonga. We spent a few months in Tonga. Um, but that thought never left me. You thought you were going to die? Yep, for sure. And three people, to be fair, did. Some yeah. people lost their fingers. Some people, you know, broke their arms, broke their legs. It was a big storm. Um, as I said, it was around 10-meter waves, 100-knot winds. Or we, had, we can't say 100-knot exactly, but our gauge stopped at 80, and then it got higher from there. So I'm guessing. I'm guessing close to 100 knot winds. And, um, yeah, it was massive, mate. It was incredible. But that's when I just went, right, well, I've already quit my ass job to jump on this boat. I, I think I know what I'm going to do when I get home. And that was um, do more music. So, you know, by that stage I'd written quite a few originals and was quite competent. And now I was just going to – and could play quite a lot of uh, cover songs. So I just started um, – busking to start with and then i started to book gigs uh at pubs and clubs and beer gardens and all around christchurch played at the uh, ricketon market a few years so that's where i cut my teeth and what's the economics of that like is it busking best or playing in a pub best or playing at the market best is or is it all how does that work depends on the day but i would say for me busking was best I'd make mm. more money playing. I'd make more money busking than I did at a paid gig. But then you could busk for two or th- you know three three hours during the day, and then you could do a three hour gig at night. And you know part of the contract you could just say, "Can I have a pub meal and uh, a couple of beers?" And so, so you'd basically have your your meals for free. And uh, I was able to save a lot of money. So you'd do six hours of music a day. Yeah, at least. Were you on your own doing it? Yeah, I did have a band um, in Christchurch, and we got together quite, uh, quite a bit. And uh, but the problem was, the thing is with band members, you you, you know, if you've got a gig down, in, let's say you're in Christchurch, you've got a gig in Methven, and you've got to leave early to to do the to do the gig. Everyone's got to be on board, you know, like the, the bass player, the, yes. the the drummer, and the keyboard. You know, if 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 one of them's late, it kind of blows it and if one if, if if the girlfriend says to one of the band members listen i wanted to spend the weekend with you this weekend then you you can't book the gig so i ended up doing lots and lots more solo stuff than i did with the band mm. and you were writing music yes. writing your own songs yes was how does that happen how does it happen um Sometimes it happens because you're mucking around on a guitar and you find a, a, a hook or a, a vibe or a chord sequence, a specific sort of feel of a song, and that reminds you of something. And then you that that's something that's happened to you because it might be sad or happy because you're just mucking around. Go, oh, it's quite a happy sound or quite a sad sound. 
whatever, and then you start writing towards the music. Other times you've got ideas for the lyrics, and then you try and find the music to fit the lyrics. Um, so often what I would do is I would shelve ideas until I found music, and then I'd go, oh, that music fits that piece, and then I would start. And often I would actually get two pieces of music, join them together, and make a full song that way. Uh, things that occur to me, you couldn't write your music down. No, I could write them. I could write it like A, A minor. I see. Yeah, C. And then while the, where the words are, you would put change to C here, change to B. Yeah. yeah. And to me, I can't imagine, like every time I think of a tune, it's someone else's song, right? Right. Yes. And I know this sounds silly, but you think the music must have run out because I can't think of a new tune. But obviously, yeah, you can think of new stuff. I don't know. I can't imagine how that happens in your head. I guess you just do a lot of music and it comes. You just do know. a lot of music. There's only, I mean, effectively, there's only 12 chords. There's seven majors and five minors. And then on top of that, there's, you know, I mean, you might have seen that court case. Um, that happened a wee while back with Ed Sheeran. I did. And and he was showing how the same four chords could be many, many different songs. And that's yeah. that that is true. Uh what it's what I would call accents. You know, so yeah. it's kind of like everyone speaks English, but if you go to Yorkshire and the UK, you're gonna notice a very big difference to the guy who speaks English in Alabama. Yeah. And guy who speaks English in Oxford and the guy who speaks English in New York and California, you can spot them. Canadians, you know, even if English-speaking uh, uh, Asians, you know, I, I can spot that if someone's speaking English and they're from the Philippines with that slight American twang or, yes. you know, or if they're from Hong Kong, they've got a very specific way of speaking English. Um, so even English is the is the main language, but they've got all these accents, and that's mm. the way music kind of is. You've got uh, the same same chords, those twelve chords, but um, and they can be arranged in a myriad of ways. But then, of course, um, how how you put your accent into it is really really what it's about. And you're playing in the pubs and at markets and at gigs and busking. Um, did it sort of get tiresome in the sense that everyone's out having a good time and you're sort of having a good time playing music, but it's actually what you do for a job? Yeah, but, I mean, I really enjoy being the um, person who sets the mood and, and, and helps people enjoy. Like, even solo, I, I, I would do the first two gigs, sorry, the first two sets, I would do fairly cruisy, and then the last set, it was always a little bit more upbeat. And it was yeah. quite a lot of high energy output for one person to do, but I always used to manage to get people up dancing. And wow. And that was fun. That, I enjoyed that. Um, but you are right. Some some days, you know, you don't want to do it, just like yeah. any other job, and you've just got to get up and get yourself into the right frame of mind. Um, for me, as a children's performer now, that's way easier to do than – than before because the crowd you only need one or two kids to to be really into you and you're having a blast you know yeah. so that's what i do if, if i'm feeling a bit under the weather or if i just you know i've done x amount of 
gigs over X amount of weeks, and I'm like, oh, this is getting a bit much. Once I get started, it's more about the packing up and loading down all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Once you get started, just focus on one or two kids that are having a blast. Yeah. And it's easy. It becomes very easy. Did drink become a problem when you're playing in pubs? No, I was pretty disciplined. I never drank what I played. Okay. Never. Burping in any key doesn't sound very good anyway. Yes. Um, so, and then at the end of the night, I, I might have one or two beers um, just to wind down after three hours of playing, whatever. Mm-hmm. Watch, watch the rugby in the pub that you're playing at, whatever it is. And then, yeah, then I'd go home. So it was pretty, it was pretty good for that. Hmm. Now, the big thing, what led you to the children's playing? How did that start? Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's just organic, really. I mean, as a professional musician, you get asked by your nieces and nephews, you know, can you play us a song today, and Craig? And, um, and so I used to start just making up silly little songs. And, um, you know, I've got a, a whole bunch of rallies down south. and I've got a hunting and fishing lodge down in a place called Monowai and lots of sandflies down there. So one of the first songs I wrote was about squishing and squashing sandflies. And, you know, the kids just enjoyed it. And uh, I wrote another one called We'll Be the Bumblebee, which was, which just we turned into a book. Um, and that went, that was also went straight to number one. Um, and that was a story that my mum had sort of come up. So she's co author on that. Um, and then it wasn't long after that that I wrote Wonky Donkey. So uh, I wrote that in TRNL. And, that was, um, you could immediately see that was a fun hit. Everyone just giggling and laughing as I was playing it, kids and adults. Um, and, yeah, it just, it made sense that I started to do children's shows um, as well because, you know, I'd, I'd be at a festival and and I'd be playing three sets, three one-hour sets of, of music for the more mature, but then I'd sneak in about four or five songs for the kids. And um, that I'd written, and I'd get parents coming up to me and saying, "Can we buy your CD?" And I'd be like, "Yep, here it is. Here the guys have got any kid songs on it." And I'd be like, "No," nope. and they were like, "Oh, okay, we're not just buying a CD." Yeah, interesting. So, yeah, so I decided to do a CD. Um, you know, and um, I mean, not to say that my adults' CDs didn't sell; they still sold, but the, I, I could clearly see I was missing a a trick here, and and you know, obviously, to, to make money from doing something you love is important. Um, so, so I, I, it wasn't lost on me that people were coming up and asking me to buy a CD. So I went and made a CD, and then I entered Wonky Donkey in the Children's Music um, Song of the Year, and it won one children. Wow, Music. I didn't know that. Yeah, and so that was in two thousand eight with um, young lady Claudia Gunn. We co-shared it. She had a lullaby song, and I had Wonky Donkey. We sort of co-won that. And then because it won, that gave me – I'd already pitched um, publishers on the idea of doing the song as a book, but um, hadn't had much success. But then when it won New Zealand Children's Song of the Year, I repitched it again, and that's when Scholastic pick, picked it up. Well, that's a good publisher too because it goes into all the schools, the little blurb, right? Yeah, and and they're the largest children's book uh, publisher in the world. So <laughs> – it's a great publisher to have if you want mm. your book to go. They're an international group. Yes, you're huge. The thing I notice about your books, and I imagine this is a big thing for parents and for children, is they're beautiful. Well, that's, I mean, that's 
Katz's work. Katz Cowley is the illustrator. And she was a friend of mine. She's also a musician. That's how we originally met. We met at a guitar clinic in Christchurch. And um, <clears throat> she showed me some of her artwork, and I was like, wow. So when I got the contract to be published, I said to Scholastic, look, I think you should have a look at this young lady's um, artwork. And initially they said no because they had their own stables. Of, and I said, just have a look. So they had a look, and then they pulled the trigger on it. They said, yep, okay, she's pretty good. So she ended up doing the uh, artwork for um, for Wonky Donkey, and the rest is history. Well, it's beautiful, beautiful. She's wonderful. Do you collaborate with her, like talk the ideas through for the artwork, or do you let her come up with it? No, I I, um, I learned this. Even in music, I learned this. You know, if you're trying to direct someone who's also creative, you're taking you're taking a piece of their creativity away. You know, if you're saying, I want you to, to draw it in a certain way, then you've already infected their mind, I guess, with that yes. with that thing. Whereas they may have had a thought, uh, which is way better than yours. Mm. And you've sort of poisoned it in a way. So mm. um but that's not to say that after they've done the sketches, you might sit down together and she might say, Oh, I'm struggling in this area or what do you think of this? Or and that's where everyone sort of puts their five cents in with and including the the publishers and myself and uh, and we might sort of say, oh, I was hoping that at the end that the donkey looked like this and not like the way you've done it. And so sometimes there are minor changes, but most of the time uh, she nails it, you know. Pretty, my, most illustrators I've worked with are really, very, very good like that. And your books have a message. Yeah, they're all very subtle. Tell us about Wonky Donkey. What's the message? Well, I mean, the message behind Wonky Donkey is it's okay to be different. Which is a good mm. message. It's a great you know, message. It's, yeah, and in fact, I've had some amazing emails from parents, and I mean, I've even had—I had a caretaker in Levin's school come up to me and says, "Because of you, I can wear shorts." I went, "What?" And he said, "Because I've had a prosthetic leg for years, and I always thought it would scare the kids." And uh, he said, "So in the summer, I'd always wear pants. In the winter, I always wear pants, of course. But he said, in the summer, I just wore pants and." But he said, when the kids were so excited about this wonky donkey book, and I'd say, oh, I've got, I've got one like him. And they went, what? And he'd pull his trousers up. And they were like, oh, wow, that's so cool, you know. And so he got over um, his, his, um, I guess, his self-consciousness or the fear that the kids were going to be worried or something like that. And so he started to wear shorts. And, you know, it's great little stories like that. And and. There's because of the music, I okay, I can connect with autistic kids a lot, so I get a lot of autistic parents, uh, or or I should say, a lot of parents of autistic children writing to me and telling me how much their kids love my books. Um, yeah, it's it's I get a lot of good feedback from that from that area. So, because the story of Wonky Donkey is he's got three legs, three legs, and he's got a missing eye. Yes, he's a winky wonky donkey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and your oh, new yes. book, which is out this week on Sunday, yes. it's being released. It's Stinky Wonky Donkey. Yes, the Stinky Wonky Donkey. So what's but, happened to him uh, now? Well, we had the Dinky Donkey after Wonky Donkey. That was great. Then we had the Granny Granny Donkey. Then Wonky Donkey's big surprise. And in each one, we 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 uh, introduced a new family member. So Dinky Donkey was Wonky Donkey's daughter. 
uh, Granny Granny Donkey was the grandmother. Uh, Wonky Donkey's big surprise. Mum comes home, and this one is uh, we were able to use all the characters in the book, and so um, basically, Dad Wonky Donkey convinces his daughter. It's a giant dad joke. He convinces his daughter that she loves all hooved animals wholeheartedly, you know, with all her heart, and that makes her hoof-hearted. He said. <laughs> so she she goes around telling everyone, "Yes, I'm hoof-hearted. I'm hoof-hearted." And without realizing what she's actually saying, what it sounds like out loud. And then at the end, uh, she says to her dad, um, you know, before you've departed, dad, are you hoof hearted? And he says, well, I'll have to tell you the truth. Here, pull my hoof. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, lots of silliness. Lots of fart. But kids yeah. love it, right? Oh, the kids love it. Yeah, they absolutely love it. And I've had really good feedback from the song already. So, um, so you'd been playing that as a song for yep. some time. Yep. Yep. And you had adjusted it as you played it. Slightly, yes. And then what happens is I give the song to the words of the song to my publishers, and then they they adjust it. So there might be some tiny little grammatical error. Yes. Or there might be some uh, way of saying a thing that you normally wouldn't. You, you can say colloquially. Like you, you can say, I, I can't get no satisfaction colloquially, but to put it in a book using a double negative and yes, giving it, it doesn't kids, look right. It's not an option. So, yeah. so they help me as well. Um, so the crew at the editing team and uh, uh, Penny Scown and, and Lynette Evans, um, they all help me with those tiny little adjustments. And then I just, yeah, once we've got everything, something that everyone's happy with, then we turn it into a book. So how many books in total have you published? Um, 15 now. So that's one a year? Pretty much, yep. Wow. And you're going to keep going? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Got got some new titles, new ideas, new books up, up my sleeve. And it yeah. must be something because over 15 books, you've built up the team, your confidence in the team, you've built up the ability to work together and to mm -hmm. understand each other. So it must become a very pleasant experience. Yeah, most of the time it is, but sometimes we butt heads. But the, the thing that we come down to at the end of the day is that we all understand that we're only doing it. The reason why we're butting heads is because we want the best product possible. Mm. We want it best uh, artistically. We want it best grammatically, like I was saying. We want it best... Um, Fun, the, the humor sort of side of things because uh, that's where I try and take my books. I try and get a giggle. Mm. I, I figure if the, if the kids are laughing and it's a fun read, they'll pick it up again and again and again. Mm. Yeah. Uh, where are your books marketed? Where are they sold into? Oh, you can get them at any good bookstore, independents and, and big store, and big bookstores. Like but are they sold in Australia? Oh, yes, they know they're sold all over the world. Well, at least the Wonky Donkey book series is. The five Wonky Donkey ones that I've done, this latest one being, you know, just released on Sunday, um, they're sold all over the world. Gosh. And not all of my other books are sold all over the world. So I've got one called Kaha the Kia. That's a very New Zealand-centric one. Mm -hmm. And so that's mm -hmm. only sold in New Zealand. Um, I've got another one called Eating. That's a self-published one as well, and that's sold in Asia, Australia, New Zealand, and that's it. Mm. Uh, so you describe yourself now 
as a children's author? Yes. I'd say uh, when when I go through customs at the airport, I always put musician author. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The great story is of the Scottish grandmother. Yeah. And so on YouTube and other channels, there's the Scottish grandmother reading Wonky Donkey with that great Scottish accent to a little infant, right? Yeah. So it's Janice Clark is the, the grandmother and Archer is the grandson. And that has been viewed, I hope the listeners are sitting down, something like 500 million times. Yeah, on all platforms around the world, half a billion times. Crazy, eh? And she just was reading. I mean, it's not orchestrated, clearly. It's just Nana reading a book to an infant. Yes. And uploaded thinking half a dozen people might watch this. And it's it gone. As a, their, yeah, it was uploaded to their um, knitting group. Jess <laughs> 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 Clark's knitting group. Now, that was a closed knitting group. There's, not everyone could see that. Only the people who were on the Facebook knitting group could see it. And then one of the ladies, and I've said to Fiona, now Fiona is the daughter who took the video, who surreptitiously videoed her grandmother reading to her grandson. She had read the book before, and she knew that this would tickle her mum's fancy, so she got the camera out. But they uploaded it to the Facebook thing, and then it was just one other lady who said, um, can I share it outside the face, outside the um, knitting Facebook group? And uh, the daughter went, yeah, of course you can. You know? And it was from that one share that it just went pop, 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 and half a billion views later. Crazy. You couldn't, you couldn't, the marketing team at Scholastic wouldn't believe it, right? No, no, no one could. You, you couldn't manufacture that if you tried. No. No, not it's, that. It's it has so to be organic to be that. And so real. Yeah. How what? Surreal is the debut studio I got my phone talking to me about being real. Um, that is, so that would have boosted your audience around the world like nothing else. Yeah. So between 2009 and 2018, the Wonky Donkey book had sold about roughly just under a million copies. That's including Asia because it was sold in Asia. It was sold in Asia and I toured. I toured Asia. I toured Taiwan and China and uh, and Malaysia and Singapore and Thailand and you name it, Vietnam. And um, so between Australia, New Zealand, and a few had sold in the UK, a few had sold in the USA. When I say a few, they printed about 75,000 and sold in the USA. Now, that sounds like a lot, and it is. But it's it's nothing when you compare what's possible in the United States, you know. So and then so all up, it sold just under a million copies for all those territories. And then Janice Clark turned up. So that was in nine years, sold a million copies. And then Janice Clark does her thing. That video gets seen. And the following year, I I, I sell a further three million. 
<laughs> so that shows you the impact. Well, I, no one. I mean, does Annabelle Lang, Langbein really sell that many books? Oh, yeah. So she's no, selling around talk, the world. But we're talking about just in New Zealand, yeah? So the, ah. introduction, the introduction where you're saying, hey, I'm the, the number one selling children's book author in New Zealand, is that's not sales outside of New Zealand. It's just sales within New Zealand. Three or four million is like a Jeffrey Archer book, right? Oh, well, look, for a time there, there was a three-week period where I was the number one selling author in the world. Yeah, across, I bet. A, across all genres. So I'd outsold Michelle Obama's autobiography, and I'd outsold Lee Child's new book. But no. It was only for three weeks, <laughs> but I'll take it. But but it was stuck there. I mean, it was it was definitely in 2018 to 2019, the Wonky Donkey was the number one selling children's book in the world for sure. Yeah. Because, like, I know that Perhaps in New Zealand, with the exception of maybe Harry Potter or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I know New Zealand. If you sell five thousand copies of a book, you're number one. Yes, you know. that's true. And you sold for four million of that one book. Well, no, that was that was between two thousand and eighteen and two thousand and nineteen. So two thousand nineteen, two thousand twenty, it sold another few million. Like it's it's sold quite a few million now. Yeah. Do you think it'd be ten million? Yeah, it's probably getting up there. I, I, that ten million is including all of my book, all fifteen of my yes. books. So maybe yes. it might be up around the mark of around eight to nine million or something like that. So for Scholastic Publishing, you'd be their number one. In New Zealand, yeah, and 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 for a time around the world, it was definitely the number one. In fact, on you. in fact, I got sent an article by a friend of mine who was uh, uh, in New York and working in the stock exchange, something you know uh, quite quite a bit about. And um, he said, oh, look, this article just came out. I had to, I had to share it with you. And it was how Scholastic's share price, because they're a publicly listed company, had jumped by 3% on the backs of Harry Potter and the Wonky Donkey. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> so it was a financial um, a financial article written in the Times over there, and he sent it to me explaining how uh, the book had affected, in a positive way, um, Scholastic's share price. And you've done uh, an edition of your stinky wonky donkey in Tereo. Not the stinky wonky donkey. No, the, the original wonky donkey. Yes, is, is now done a Tereo Maori version. And that How was did released, that happen? That was released about um, two and a half weeks ago for Maori uh, Language Week. And how it happens is, if you've got a hugely successful book in English, and you know everyone want uh, their book to be in other languages and obviously in New Zealand Tera Maori is one of them. So it was a no brainer really that we um that we reprinted it with uh we got um, some good translators in and then uh, reprinted it and it's now a book in Tera Maori. So did you sing the song uh, for it in Tera? I, I did not um but I'm getting coaching. Great. <laughs> I'm going to get and, some coaching. I've got a, a local guy here who's going to help me out, and there's another person who's going to help me out as well. 
Good on you. And what about other languages around the world? Yeah, it has been translated. It's been translated into Chinese, been translated into Albanian, Italian. Oh, yeah. But the thing is, though. The I'd like to hear you sing it in Chinese. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the good thing about uh, what I do with the music um, component of the book is that if you're learning English as a second language, you can put the CD on and learn to read without having to have a teacher there or a parent yes. there to just correct you because the kids can hear the sound wonky, spunky, and all these words, and they can play the music. And because it's uh, played in music, you've got that, um, you know, that mnemonic sort of yes. like when you when you learn an alphabet, you're you're learning it in song A B C yes. D E F G makes it easier to remember. So that music component tree allows the book to be sold in English in a country like China because lots of Chinese people learn English and the music helps them to learn English. Of course. Of so, course. you wonderful. know, um, so it, is, it has been translated into many languages, but equally it's probably sold more in those countries as an English book because of the music componentry. They can, yes. the kids can learn how to, to, to learn English. Tell me, Craig, is it a feature of other children's books that they're put to music in a song? No, no. Traditionally, it's children's books are children's books. In that yeah. But Which there, is are, there are a few others out there. You know, I mean, one of the things that made me think of putting Wonky Donkey into a children's book was the song um, There Was an Old Lady Who Swallowed a Fly. Mm. Now, that's always been a song, as far as I can remember, but then it got turned into a book. Mm. And the wheels on the bus go and round the and round. On the bus go round and round. Exactly. So there are a lot of of, of children's uh, stories that are written in song, but traditionally, I'd say you know, good probably ninety five percent of children's picture books are not yes. written in song. Yeah. Now, I've got to say to listeners, if you're thinking about getting your grandkids or your kids a book to read, you can't do better than the Wonky Donkey series. They are fabulous books. As I said, my kids love them. I've watched uh, Craig perform at a local market here with kids, and you must get a lot of pleasure because the kids just, it's gleeful, isn't it? There's nothing There's nothing more uplifting than kids, their glee when they're enjoying something and partaking and singing along. And when you say things like farting, and they all giggle and laugh. It's nothing yeah. better to watch. And also the nature of my books, they're on the silly edge. You know, I was a yes. huge fan. I was a huge fan of Spike Milligan growing up. Yes. And that creeps, that, that's sort of right on that edge of ridiculousness. Yes. Um, and um, the, when you perform like that as a performer, it's you've given license to the kids to do the same. Yeah. And then when the kids start acting silly, that's, I mean, I, I, there's but there's been gigs where I've had to look in another direction and not at a specific bunch of kids or a specific kid because I know if I do, they're going to make me laugh and I'm not going to be able yeah. to sing a song. Yeah. So, you know, it's got to that point where I've had to look away so that I can finish the gig because I'm laughing. Yeah, so, you know, so um, I, I have a good time and so do the kids. Oh, look, um, as I said, if you're wanting something for your kids or for your grandkids or for your neighbor's kids, uh, what age do you think this works best for kids? I mean, if you're reading to the child, you know, 
who can't read any age, you know. I mean, yeah. I started reading to my daughter when she was five, five or six weeks old. You know what I mean? Yes. I just picked her up and started reading to little, just little stories. Um, but right up, I mean, I've I've had look, I've had to play. I had to play at an eighty-year-old funeral. Wow! And and the reason being is because that that person who passed away, uh, his favorite time was listening and reading the wonky donkey to his grandkids and he wanted his funeral to be a fun thing so so um you know i ended up playing at that funeral but the point being is that right up from i always say from eight months to 80 years old this, oh, there this, you go good for you yeah. and tell me have you been in touch with the scottish granny Yes, Janice Clark and I are good friends. In fact, in January, I flew her up. Now, it's a misnomer that she's um, she lives in Scotland. She's from Scotland. She's from Ayrshire, but she lives in Queensland. Ah. So so um, that video was done in Queensland, and I flew her and her daughter and her grandson, Archer, and her sister, who was visiting from Ayrshire uh, in Queensland. I flew them over for 10 days to Queenstown. And we did the big touristy thing, Ernstor, Milford Sound, jet boats, all that sort of palaver, yeah. We had a great time. And she couldn't believe it either, right? She'd be just dumbfounded. Oh, yeah. And, of course, they, they made money from advertising from the video. Oh, on YouTube, of course. Yeah, yeah, YouTube and, and all the other platforms. So How funny. So it, was, it, was, it was nothing massive, massive, but it's… It's, it's something. Know, I'm sure it would have made a I don't, I don't know exactly how much they made, but half a billion. They've got to have made some money out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the song for Stinky Wonky Donkey, we're going to play after this is. Yes. I heard it. I can't get the song out of my head. It's like <laughs> the wheels on the bus. Even when you want it out of your head, it's still there. That's good news. But you're... It's a wonderful tune. You do. It's just in my head now. And I sing the words to myself. I, I, I went out working and I was singing it to, I could hear it playing in my head. An <laughs> actual fact, when I sang it, Craig, my voice in harmony was parallel to yours. Brilliant. Yes. <laughs> I could hear it perfectly. It was beautiful. No one was around. And so I sang it quite loudly. And fulsomely, but I know what yeah. happens from experience. If anyone could should hear me, yeah. but you have a—it's a duet. Yes. So I convinced my eight-year-old daughter, who can sing very well, to join me in the studio. And I, yeah, you know, I've got this thing in life called the eight P's of life: proper preparation and perfect practice prevents a piss poor performance. I'm not sure if you've yes. heard it before. Yes. So I pre- I prepared her. We we sung it heaps in my lounge here. I took her to the studio two weeks before we had the studio booked just to have a look around and meet the engineer. So it wasn't, she wasn't, you know, she knew what she was, the, the place that she was going to. Um, uh, I sung it with her. And then, and then when we were in the studio on the day, we just broke it up into little segments. So she only yes. had to sing one line or two lines. Yes. It's a fantastic job. I was so proud of her. And, um, yeah, but I was just so happy with the result. And it makes the song. It yeah. absolutely makes the song. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, she's a wonderful, wonderful daughter. You should be very proud of her. Craig, uh, we're going to end on that song. Have you got anything else you'd like to share with listeners? Um, oh, I just, I, I've actually just had a knee replacement. Yes. 
had a brand new stainless steel knee put in last week. You're like that six million dollar man. Well, the six six pound dollar man. I don't know. <laughs> um, but no, the, the the irony being is I'm lying on my couch doing this interview at the moment uh, with 25 staples in my leg, which are getting taken out tomorrow, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, and how how life is imitating art. And, because you're the wonky donkey. Wonky donkey. And it's his left leg and it's my left leg. Uh, he, he's got a missing eye, though. So, I'm, I, look, if I start missing an Be eye. Be careful. Yeah. You know, he's a stinky wonky donkey. I've already got that down, Pat. Yeah. Um, I know that from experience. Yeah. Well, you know, the half, half of his. It's an autobiography, really. Yeah. Half of the adjectives in it uh, describe me. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. Just. I mean, that aside, it's just quite interesting that this is happening. <laughs> what What is your injury from? Oh, look! I used to play a lot of rugby and basketball when I was a kid, and I blew my knees out and once in rugby and once in basketball. And my left knee was done when I was seventeen years old in that terrible stadium in Dunedin with the concrete floor and the rubber mat. Cold, big old. You know that's it's an ice rink yeah. now. That's what it should have always been. Um. And I blew my knee out on that court when I was 17. And 35 years later, continuing to play basketball and rugby, it just got to a point where I could hardly hardly use it anymore. Couldn't run. My eight-year-old daughter's faster than me. So I'm looking forward to being able for, for it to be useful again. That's, that's what I'm excited about. Good. Well, good luck with that. Good luck on the rehabilitation. Thank you for your time here today. But more particularly, thank you for bringing all that joy and to kids, mums and dads, nannies and granddads, everyone, because not many of us get an opportunity in the work that we do to entertain and make people happy. No, no, they don't. And I, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. But thank you, Rodney. I yeah. appreciate it. It's been lovely and, talking. And I'm looking forward to your next books. Me too. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Right. That was Craig Smith, the author of uh, Wonky donkey series they're wonderful books um if you haven't seen them get them get the cd listen to them your kids will love them your grandkids will love them my kids love them and uh when craig performs it it is just something else for all the kids to see you're on reality check radio it's real talk with rodney hyde thank you for stopping by thank you for listening this is real talk with rodney hyde tuesdays and thursdays from 10 a.m 